Welcome to this episode of the Beyond Devices podcast. We missed you all last week. We didn't record a podcast. Aaron was unavailable for the week and I was also on vacation the second half of the week. So we skipped last week, uh, but we're back again this week, a day later than usual. We'll be releasing this on Friday rather than Thursday. Uh, But today we're doing something of a preview of Apple's financial reporting that's going to be happening next week. And our question of the week specifically will focus on Uh, how Apple reports and what are some of the important things that you need to understand ahead of next week's earning report from Apple. We'll also be talking about a couple of other topics in brief. We'll talk about the new iPods that came out this week. We'll talk about the new iPhone ads that came out recently and uh, have a brief discussion on those. And we'll also talk about the public betas of Apple's major software platforms that were released in the last little while as well, which Aaron has been using and which Aaron previewed for us a few weeks back. Uh, but we're going to kick off. I'm going to change things up. Usually we put uh, the question of the week in the middle of the episode. But this time I'm going to do it up front just because it'll provide some important context for Uh, the discussion about Apple's earnings next week. Uh, And so I'm the one that's done kind of the background reading here. I I do spend a lot of time looking into Apple's finances and so on. Um, But we're going to kick off by talking about Apple's financial reporting, how it works, what to expect, uh, what's reported where, and all that kind of thing. Right. So um, the way we normally do the question of the week format is the person answering is getting quizzed by the person asking. And so I'm doing the asking this week. And so, yeah, and I, I, I'll i start off with a little bit of context. I think most of us who follow Apple follow Apple, you know, not necessarily to the depth that you do professionally. And so, for example, when when Apple announces its latest quarterly earnings, I, I think most of us just sort of look at the headlines and see record quarter or something to that effect. You know, occasionally, like some details will pop up in the headlines that I see, you know, maybe relevant to like iPad sales flattening or something along those lines. But I thought it'd be good for you to maybe start off by giving us just some basics on Apple's quarterly earnings reports, like how they work, when they, what time of year they tend to report, and so forth. Sure, absolutely. So uh, Apple, along with many other companies, tends to report roughly on a financial calendar quarter basis. Um, so they they don't exactly map up with the calendar quarter, so it doesn't go January 1st to March 31st exactly, but they're usually right around that somewhere. Apple tries to make sure that all its quarters have 13 weeks in them um, so that they're more comparable than they would be if they some were shorter and some were longer. Uh, but it usually ends right around the end of the calendar quarter, and then it reports usually about two and a half to three weeks after the end of that quarter. Um, So next Tuesday is when they're going to be reporting. That'll be just over three weeks after the end of the quarter. And Apple's often one of the first major companies to report. Uh, This year, only Google out of the really big technology companies has reported previously. Uh, Microsoft, somewhat frustratingly, will be reporting at exactly the same time. Uh, But Apple usually reports in... Um, January they report the quarter ending December. In May they report the quarter that uh, excuse me in April they report the quarter ended in March, and so on and so forth throughout the year. So what we're going to have this time around is the second calendar quarter of the year. Somewhat Apple actually uses a different fiscal calendar, so it's actually Q3 I believe for them this time around, but it's Q2 from a calendar perspective. So when they report, it's usually with uh, obviously documentation of some kind plus a phone call. Can you describe those just a little bit? Yeah, so most technology companies, I think pretty much all companies actually, will report in one or two, one of two time slots. And one is before the market opens in the morning, and the market being the New York Stock Exchange. 
Um, so they report very early in the morning um, or they report in the late afternoon. And so Apple, after the market closes on Tuesday, which is around 4 p.m. Uh, Eastern time, uh, Apple will release a report on its website through its investor relations site. There'll be a press release that will run through some of the major figures. And then attached to that press release is what they call a, a data summary. And that data summary has two things broken out on it. It has, it has some of the basic financials, but then it also has uh, two segment breakdowns. And one of those is a segmentation by product, and the other one is a segmentation by uh, geography. And so they, they're basically taking the top line revenue number and breaking it down in these two different ways, one by product and one by geographic region. So there's that documentation. And then after people have had you know anywhere from a half an hour to an hour to digest those things, uh, they start the earnings call, which is where Tim Cook and um, the uh, other senior executives, usually the CFO and maybe one or two others, get on the phone with financial analysts, do a brief prepared remarks, usually 15, 20 minutes, something like that, and then spend the rest of the time answering questions from the financial analysts about the quarter. And that's the time when the financial analysts try to probe and, and try to pry information that Apple isn't usually willing to release out of those executives. The executives usually shut those analysts down. Um, but we do sometimes get some extra tidbits that come out uh, in response to the questioning from the analysts. And that all happens, as I say, about an hour after the numbers go on the website. And, and that call lasts for about an hour. I've listened to a handful of these calls over the years just out of curiosity, and it seems like analysts continue to ask questions that they know Apple will not answer. What do you think is going on? Like, why do they think that Apple will suddenly change its mind one time or maybe slip up, or why do they keep asking? Yeah, I think it's a combination of two things. I think part of it is that I think they keep probing in the hopes that someday the answer will be different. Um, but I think there's also an element of feeling like they're doing their duty by their their clients to some oh, extent. You know, their clients are asking them these questions, and they feel kind of duty-bound to ask the executives those questions too but it, it really does get very funny sometimes I mean there's this one analyst called Gene Munster who is legendary for asking almost every quarter for about three years when Apple was going to release a television set um, prompted by the story in the Walter Isaacson book about Steve Jobs wanting to reinvent TV and so on um, and he just didn't give up and didn't give up and it, came, it got to the point that you could almost hear everybody else on the call laughing when it happened um, just because it was so predictable. Didn't Gene Munster give up the fight recently? Didn't he say he, he sort of came to terms with that Apple's not going to release a t television set? Yeah, there was a Wall Street Journal report that came out recently that basically said they stopped working on it some time ago. The project's been shelved. It's not coming anytime soon. And so I think he finally did concede defeat on that point. This is when Apple needs to actually do it then. That would just be That's right. too funny. <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, Apple's changed the way it reports its earnings recently. Can you talk us through the change? Yeah, so I mentioned just now that they have both a product segmentation and a geographic segmentation in their results. And it's not the first time Apple's changed the way it reports this stuff. In, in a couple of years ago, in 2013, they changed the way they report. Um, and they've done it again early this year. And the change this time around is they moved, they shifted some things around. So most notably the iPod, which used to be its own reporting category as a product in its own right, where they'd report the number of iPods sold and then report the revenue associated with that. That's got shoved into a category that now has a lot of other stuff in it too, um, so that the, it's now in what's called other products. Uh, and there's quite a lot of different stuff in there now. Um, so the iPods kind of disappeared. And at the same time, they've renamed some of the categories. So there are now five product categories, which are iPhone, iPad, and Mac, and then services, and then fifth, other products. Um, and so you have these five categories now. Uh, and as I say, some stuff got moved around, most notably the iPod, uh, but some other stuff got moved around too. So why, um, 
you know, how do they choose these categories? Like, why do they choose these particular product categories um, in the way they report? Is it is it in part to hide things? I mean, especially knowing Apple as you have over the years, do you think they would they would rather just not report anything if they could get away with it? It seems like it seems strange because it seems like they have some control, but not a lot of control about how they're going to report stuff to keep investors happy. Yeah, it's fascinating, actually. I mean, I look at a lot of other tech companies' earnings, too, and Apple's famous for being secretive and not sharing very much about its plans or anything else. But the irony is that Apple's actually one of the most transparent companies when it comes to reporting its major product lines. Um, you know, the iPhone, the iPad, the Mac are broken out separately. Um, you get shipment numbers and you get revenue numbers, which then in turn allows you to calculate things like average selling prices and so on and how that's changing over time. Uh, so, you know, there's no other company almost at this point that does that in that at that transparent level, you know, whether it's Samsung or whether it's Dell and PCs or whether it's, you know, LG and tablets or whatever, you know, these companies tend not to report this level of detail. So Apple's actually unique in how much it does disclose, but it does have some categories um, aside from those three that are not reported in anything like that level of detail. And they tend to be the smaller ones. So the iPod was a major product category for a long time, but is obviously and clearly in decline at this point. And so they've moved that into other products, but also in other products are uh, the Apple TV, which they've described as a hobby at various points in the past, and they've never really reported numbers directly around that. Um, but also um, in there is the Apple Watch now. And that's the other thing, interesting thing is the Apple Watch is tiny for now. Um, but, you know, in time, it's going to become really quite big. But for now, it's hidden away in that other products category. And there's two ways of thinking about that. And, and you know, the cynical answer is that Apple doesn't want to tell anybody how it's doing. And so it's, it's kind of uh, tidied it away in this category where it's very hard to see what's really going on. But the other thing is it's very nascent, and, and this, there's a precedent for this with the iPod. When that first launched, Apple didn't break it out for uh, several quarters until it really got big enough to start reporting on its own. And I suspect Apple will do the same with the Apple Watch over the next few quarters as it gets big enough to be one of those major product categories alongside the iPhone, the iPad, and the Mac. So you don't, So I, I have noticed that in times past, Apple, well, so the Apple TV is a good example of this, because in times past, Apple has actually announced sales numbers, but not as part of sort of their regular quarterly reporting. It was just sort of a voluntary thing that they threw out. In fact, I think they did it once during quarterly report, where they said, we've sold yeah. X number of Apple TVs, but it wasn't, but, but they didn't sort of give the expectation, we're going to regularly report this, we're just doing no, this one-off right. number. So tell me, do you think Apple's going to give us a one-off number on the watch, even if they haven't broken mm -hmm. it out, like, officially? No. Yeah, no, I don't think they will. I don't think they will. I think it's too early. I think, you know, on last quarter's earnings, the the call happened uh, right around the time they were launching. And so they'd had the pre-orders going and so on. And so they had some sense of demand. And at that point, the, the kind of clear statement was, uh, we're supply constrained. And I think because of that, I think they don't want to release a number just yet because it's more reflective of supply constraints than it is truly of the level of underlying demand. Because uh, it's just barely gone on sale in stores over the last few weeks. In some markets, it's even still not available. I was in Belgium this week, and it's not available there yet, apparently. So, you know, there are lots of countries where people would like to buy it, but can't even buy it yet. And in, in a situation where that's the case, I feel like Apple doesn't want to give out a number that people would interpret as a signal of demand, when in fact, it's more of a signal of, you know, how many are actually available for people to buy at this point. So for that reason, I suspect they will hold off for now. As I say, I think it'll come later, but I just don't think we're going to see anything specific this time around yeah two thoughts on that that, that kind of i mean one is that uh you know it just you're right about the supply constraints being the biggest problem i mean just this week uh the watches that are sold on the apple store online have finally hit same day shipping status right. whereas you know mm -hmm. that hadn't been the case for the, the many weeks that it's been for sale 
Um, the second thought is that you know Apple tends to announce product when they're announcing product numbers out of turn or like out of you know the standard practice with the quarterly reports, they tend to do it based on milestones, right? Like they say we've like when they've hit 10 million of a product or 100 million of a product, that's they often announce at those points. Yeah. What, what milestone do you think they would maybe use if you were to guess as far as the Apple Watch is concerned before we knew any numbers? Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, the Apple TV, you mentioned they, they've reported some numbers. What they've generally done there is given kind of a cumulative number. So they've never kind of said we sold this many Apple TVs this quarter. They've kind of said we've sold 18 million in total or we've, you know, roughly half of those were in the last year or something like that. So there's these ballpark numbers, but it's never a kind of a quarterly figure in the way that they provide with some of the other products. Um, so I'm not sure. And also the Apple TV is a minor product. You know, it's described as a hobby. It's, you know, a $100 device now sunk even lower than that. You know, it doesn't make a huge dent in overall revenues. It's not that significant. I think with Apple TV, it will be harder and harder to keep it out of reporting just because the numbers are going to become quite big. You know, say they sell 20 million during the course of 2015, you know, average selling price of $500, that's actually quite a bit of money. Um, and it's going to be very hard to continue to hide that away in other products. And so I think that more than anything else is going to mean that they do eventually break it out. Um, I think Q4 of this year, the holiday quarter is going to be a huge quarter for the Apple Watch and for Apple in general. It's always their biggest quarter of the year. So I think, you know, when they report that quarter in January, I suspect that may be when they start to break it out in detail. How much of a difference do you think WatchOS 2.0 is going to make as far as like sales momentum for the watch is concerned? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough sell because, you know, Apple can't really sell around it. I don't think I think that's quite tough. Maybe they do some advertising saying now with native apps, but, you know, most people wouldn't know what that means. Um, but I think what will really make the difference is that the new round of reviews that might come out at that time and that people start saying, wow, the apps are great and we're starting to see some really great apps. So I think it'll be a slow burn. Um, you know, I'm really looking forward to it. I really think it's going to make a big difference to the quality of the apps on the watch. And I think that in turn will mean the kind of word of mouth side of things, which is really important to the watch, I think will start to get a lot better and a lot stronger. Um, and I think some of the unique use cases that the watch is good for that will rely on third party apps will become clearer at that point, too. Yeah, I could picture Apple running ads based on apps that developers have come up with that might be more compelling to the people who have held off so far on the watch. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's uh, it's a lot of how Apple advertises the iPad and the iPhone, right, is 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 with apps that Apple never produces. I mean, it's the third party right. apps that really have driven those two platforms. So I agree. I think it, <clears throat> I think if there's a new push with WatchOS 2.0, a lot of it's going to come because of the creativity of developers. So back to earnings, though, <clears throat> one of the things that always happens with an earnings report is, uh, you know, journalists are always talking about how the report compares to analyst expectations. Wh who are these analysts and how are they developing these expectations, especially for a company like Apple that can be so secretive? Yeah, absolutely. that's a great question. And, and you get some really tortured language around some of this stuff. I saw a piece today something saying something about uh, Apple is expected to beat expectations. And uh, that's just about the most awkward language you can imagine. You know, like by definition, you're hitting expectations. Um, so, but there's, there's a kind of two-part process here. And one is that every time Apple does report earnings, it tends to provide guidance for the following quarter. In other words, this is roughly the range in which we expect our various key numbers to land. And they don't say this is how many iPhones we expect to sell. They just say revenue and some margin numbers. Um, but by doing that, they kind of send a fairly strong signal about how many iPhones they'd have to sell to get to that number and so on. And there's this interesting history here because for a number of years, Apple would lowball its guidance and then smash through it. Um, and I've seen that happen with a few other companies too. And what happens is that the analysts, and I'll explain who they are in a minute, they tend to 
come to expect that. And so they basically inflate whatever the official guidance is and make that their expectation. And then um, and then if the company ever doesn't blow through its own guidance, then it's considered a kind of a miss on expectations, a poor performance. And so Apple, a couple of years ago now, kind of said, you know what, we're going to be realistic about our guidance now. We're going to give you the actual range that we're expecting to be within. What we've seen over the last few quarters, though, is that Apple started creeping back above that guidance again, and in some cases fairly significantly. And I think that's less a reflection of a return to the old days where they were deliberately smashing their guidance and more just it's, it's very hard to predict at the moment um, because iPhone sales have been extremely strong and, and much higher than last year, and they've just not wanted to overpromise and underdeliver on that. Um, in terms of your question about who the analysts are, they're financial analysts. So I'm an analyst, but I'm in what's called an industry analyst. So I work for um, on behalf of uh, clients that come from the industry. So whether it's Apple itself, whether it's Microsoft, whether it's you know carriers or whoever else it might be that I might do some work for, um, you know those are my clients. But financial analysts work for the big banks, the Morgan Stanleys, the Goldman Sachs's, and so on. And their job is to provide investment advice. So they're basically following the Apple stock along with a number of other stocks and providing potential investors advice on whether they should hold, whether they should buy, whether they should sell that particular stock. And so they represent shareholders essentially on the earnings call. They all have models of how they expect Apple to perform. And so these earnings calls are opportunities too for them to start to gauge their models and whether they're accurate or not and try to think about what the next quarter is going to look like. And so often in the earnings calls, you get these really obscure questions about earnings per share and dilution and, and taxation rates and things like that, because they're trying to work out in their models, you know, what the next quarter is going to look like and, and that kind of thing. So the calls are held kind of for their benefit, although many others, myself included, do listen into them uh, and try to glean tidbits from it as well. So it seems like analysts must have to do some sort of original research to inform their financial estimates. Uh, where do they get this research? Like, how do they how do they sort of try to dig into Apple's business without having access to the information Apple knows? Yeah, it's it's tricky because you, there's a fine line between trying to do that kind of research and, and insider trading, essentially trying to get hold of information that nobody but the company itself has ahead of when they actually report the results. Um, but these different companies do different kinds of research. Some of them will do their own primary research. In other words, they do surveys where they actually go out and ask ordinary people whether they've bought Apple products in the last quarter and that kind of thing. They'll try to find out, you know, what percentage of people bought Apple watches and then try to turn that into a projection of some kind. Um, they'll often do what are called channel checks where they'll go into Apple stores and just kind of ask around about what's been sold lately and how traffic's been or that kind of thing. Or on the day of the launch of a new device, they'll go to a bunch of different stores and see whether they have devices in stock and that kind of thing. So there's a lot of different kinds of research that they do and they, they try to talk to um, people in the supply chain as well. So you might go to talk to component suppliers that uh, sell components that go into the iPhone about what they're seeing um, or go talk to retailers about the trends they're seeing in terms of which devices are selling best in order to try to project demand as well. So those all seem pretty rough estimates. So how much credence do you think we ought to give analysts expectations every time Apple's issuing its quarterly earnings? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I talked about this one set of financial analysts, which are those that work for the big banks. There's this other set of sort of independent analysts, some of whom are very focused on the stock as well, some of whom are just sort of industry analysts that maybe blog online and that kind of thing. Um, but a variety of them have their own kind of estimates and forecasts. And there's been something of a trend. There's a guy called Philip Elmer DeWitt, who is a writer for Fortune uh, magazine online who covers Apple for the company. And he does a regular scorecard every quarter where he measures how well these analysts have done. And for the last several years now, a lot of the independent analysts that don't work for the big banks have actually done a better job 
And I think part of the reason for that is some of them do actually understand Apple better as a company. But I think, too, these analysts don't have much on the line. Um, you know, they're kind of making these projections. If they get it wrong, they maybe look a bit silly and maybe people don't pay so much attention to them anymore. But the financial analysts at the big banks have lots of people actually betting real money on this stuff. And so they tend to be a bit more conservative, which means when Apple tends to have a, a blowout quarter, the, the big financial analysts tend to underestimate how well Apple's going to do. And in general, they tend to lowball things, whereas some of the independent analysts, sometimes things get out of hand with them. But when Apple has really good quarters, it's often those analysts that tend to be more accurate. That totally makes sense. So in my classes, I teach a concept called loss aversion that comes from behavioral economics. Mm. And essentially, we, 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 as people, we tend to hate losses more than we like equivalent gains, right? And so right. if you miss on an upside... Um, it's like, oh, well, but if you miss high and then your clients are losing money, they're going to be far more angry, <laughs> right? Right. right? Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, yeah that's, that's really interesting. Okay, so the last question I want to ask about earnings is seasonality. I know yeah. that, you know, I mean, the summertime seems like it's slow for Apple when it comes to sales. And obviously, and you mentioned the holiday quarter tends to be a really big quarter for Apple. How does seasonality work with their financial earnings? Not just not just sort of as a general concept, but for Apple specifically, like what sort of patterns come out in the seasonality of their earnings? Yeah, absolutely. Apple's got hugely cyclical earnings that, that go in a fairly predictable pattern during the course of the year. And the main reason for that is the iPhone is easily their biggest product and their biggest source of revenue. It's about 60% of their revenue and, and much more of that than their much more than that of their margins. Um, and as such, uh, what happens with the iPhone determines kind of the overall direction of the company. And the iPhone comes out very predictably right at the end of the third calendar quarter towards the end of September. Um, and so what you get is this pattern throughout the year where Q3 is extremely quiet until you get to the last couple of weeks of September. And then they have a launch weekend and, and you know a week or two of sales after that. And so that tends to put Q3 kind of in the middle uh, of the quarters of the year. Q4 is then huge because that's the first quarter where Apple really has enough iPhones to sell to everybody who wants one. You've also got Christmas when there's a huge amount of purchasing and quite a number of big markets around the world. So Q4 is always by far their biggest quarter. It's big for Macs and iPads and was always big for iPods in the past as well. Um, and then Q1 drops off a little bit. But in Q1, with China being increasingly important to Apple, in, in you've got the Chinese New Year when people tend to have a lot of money to spend because they give each other these envelopes with money. And, um, and so there's a spending spree that happens in, in Asia um, in Q1 uh, calendar year. Um, so Q1 ends up being often the second biggest quarter. And then Q2, which is the one we're just seeing now, is actually often one of the quietest quarters of the year because uh, people who are really into iPhones and that kind of thing probably have one by now if they were going to buy a new one this year or they're going to wait until September when there are new ones. And so Q2 is often the slowest one. What was interesting a couple of years back when they had the the iPhone um, 5C was uh, that it actually propped up sales somewhat in Q2 because they did really heavy promotions around the iPhone 5C in that second quarter and into the third quarter so that sales actually stabilized and they didn't drop quite as much that year. Um, they haven't had anything similar since then. It'll be very interesting to see what they do in Q2. The big difference this year, of course, is they've had the Apple Watch launch in that what's normally quite a quiet quarter. Um, so that might offset things a little bit. But you get this up and down pattern where Q3 is sort of a medium quarter. Q4 is huge. Q1 drops a little bit from there. It's probably second biggest at this point. And then Q2 tends to be kind of the, the bottom of the curve when things start to curve back up again in Q3 
Um, and that's sort of the fairly predictable pattern that they have throughout the yeah. year. So if we see um, Apple reporting record-breaking earnings, it's not going to be because it was their most profitable quarter ever. It'd be because it was their most profitable second quarter ever. Is that right? Exactly, yeah. So the best comparison to make is always year-on-year year rather than quarter-on-quarter. Quarter. Um, and you often see people say, oh, this is the biggest quarter ever, or this was down on last quarter or whatever. But you have to see it in the context of the historical pattern. And so I always try to use either year-on-year trends where I can. The other thing that I do a lot of the time in my analysis is I'll add up the last four quarters, which gives you a full year of that cycle. Um, And so compare those four quarters to the same four quarters of the previous year or see how it goes up and down on a quarterly basis, but over four quarters, um, because that gives you a much better sense of the kind of longer-term trends as opposed to that cyclical stuff. So uh, how big of a deal do you think China will have on its Q1 earnings? I mean, China is a hugely growing market for Apple. In fact, it seems like it's the fastest growing market and also the, the biggest that Apple is entering. So do you think that will shift where maybe Q1 eventually becomes bigger than Q4? Yeah, it, it certainly was really big in, in Q1 this year. Um, they had a, a really huge quarter then as well as in Q4, which was a record already. Um, so it wasn't bigger. And I suspect it may never be bigger but just because of the sheer number of markets where Q4 is so big and because it's right after the launch of the new iPhone. So even in places that don't have any particular reason to buy stuff in Q4 generally, there's still a good reason to buy a new iPhone then. So I'm not sure it'll ever be bigger, but it's, you know, the drop is certainly less pronounced than it was in the past. And China is going to is already a bigger smartphone market than the U.S. It's probably going to be bigger than uh, the U.S. in many quarters for for Apple um, as a market. Um, But I think Q4 will probably always be the biggest overall. Yeah. Any last tidbits, like any thoughts about like iPad velocity, you know, or any 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 other thoughts you have, like things you're curious to look at this time around? Yeah, I, iPads a fascinating one. It's probably one we should discuss in detail some other time. But, um, you know, my, my feeling on that is at some point we're due for a really big upgrade cycle with the iPad um, because there are a lot of people out there who have had one for sort of three or four years at this point, And that's about how long they last before really starting to slow down. So I, I suspect at some point this year we may see an uptick in iPads. Apple may also launch a larger iPad at some point this year, which could spark that too. I think one other interesting thing to think about is almost everything new that Apple's either launched itself or acquired is in one of these two mysterious categories. Um, So we talked about the Apple Watch, which is in this other products category. Also in there are Beats headphones. Um, So they're basically totally opaque from the outside. You can't really see what's going on with those. Um, Also in um, the services category, you have both Apple Pay, which is not a huge revenue generator, but could become one over time, and Apple Music, which sits within with iTunes in that services category. So almost all the new stuff that Apple's doing at the moment sits in these two fairly opaque categories where we're not likely to see a lot of detail. And so a lot of what I'll be looking for and a lot of what the financial analysts will be probing for is more detail about those things that sit kind of a level down from Apple's reporting structure to see you know, what they might be able to tease out there and what the underlying trends might be. Cool. Well, that, that's all really fascinating stuff. I feel like I'm better armed to understand the earnings reports when Apple issues them. Yeah, and it'll be very interesting to watch. I mean, you know, the Apple Watch in particular, they won't give us an exact number, but based on trends and things like that in these reporting categories, we should be able to pull out some idea of how many Apple Watches they've sold. I think it'll probably be about 5 million that they'll have sold in that quarter. Um, it's very hard to tell more precisely than that. I, I My projection is it'll sell about 20 million in 2015. That's probably at the higher end of most people's 
uh, estimates. There are a few other people around with similar estimates, but uh, this is going to be the first key quarter. I think Q3 may be about the same, and then Q4 is going to be huge because there's going to be watch OS 2, as you were saying. There's going to be the holiday season and, and all the gift buying that happens at that time. And so I think Q4 could well be significantly higher than these first two quarters, and it'll be fascinating to see what happens there. And they report that in January, right? So probably January yeah, yeah. will have a better sense of the future of the Apple Watch. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there have been headlines this week saying, you know, Apple Watch not dead yet. And it's like, it's far from dead. It's just barely launched. It's probably sold millions. It's going to be a very nice product for Apple. Um, it'll drag down its margins a bit in the short term because it's a brand new product and the margins are always lower early on. Um, but over the long term, I think it's been an extremely successful product for Apple. So I don't think there's anything to worry about there as such. Great. Well, thank you for all that. Yeah. Um, so the second topic we're going to talk about was uh, public betas. Um, Apple launched iOS and OS 10 public betas. And as Aaron kind of talked us through a few weeks back, this is kind of the second phase in the rollout of the new operating system following the developer preview. Um, and I, I've been using the developer preview on um, my on one of my phones and on, on one of my Macs um, of those uh, versions. And they are somewhat buggy. But Aaron, I know, picked up the public betas of the other two um, this week or, or last week. And so, Aaron, what's been your experience with those so far? Uh, it's been far better than I had this time last year. <laughs> so that's that's a promising thing. Right, I right. predicted it. So a few weeks ago, I predicted that Apple would issue the public beta um, uh, around the beginning of next week, actually. So I, I was off by a couple of weeks, but not too far off, um, happily. Um, although, it, so Really, when we say public beta, essentially what I'm running is the same thing as developer preview three, I think it is. I think that's what you're on mm -hmm. right now, Yan. Yeah. Is, yeah, that, yeah, is yeah. that right? And so what's going to be happening over the rest of this summer, if Apple sticks to its pattern, um, is that developer previews are going to continue to come out every couple of weeks, and the public beta is going to come out on a roughly monthly basis. And so I'll be getting a second version of the public beta probably about a month from now. Yan, in, that, in the meantime, you're probably going to get developer preview four, and then five is probably where we'll line up together again. Right. Um, the public beta experience has been really great so far. I've never done it on the iPhone or iPad, and uh, that was really a piece of cake. Essentially, mm -hmm. I just had to take my my iPhone and iPad to the developer, to, sorry, to the public beta website, and then tap a button and install the profile on those devices that meant um, that they essentially told Apple, hey, send the beta to this device. Right. right. Um, I have seen bugginess, though. It hasn't been perfect, although it was far better than the experience I had this time last year. Um, happily, third-party apps have not been nearly as buggy as I thought. Um, in fact, I haven't had any third-party apps that simply won't run, whereas that was definitely the case last year. Right. It's interesting. I, I, yeah, I've, I've been running since the first developer preview, so I'm on third version now, and it's it's got significantly better over the last couple of months. Um, and uh, yeah, I do have some third-party apps. I don't necessarily refuse to run at all, but I have some that crash every time I get to a critical part of whatever workflow I'm trying to use with them. So I'm looking forward to some of that stuff getting worked out over the next little while. Um, but yeah, in general, it's, it's actually been very usable. I'm always a bit nervous to put a developer preview on my main device, and, and people generally advise against that. But I've been okay, actually, this time around. And for the most part, it's been very usable. Yeah, I've put them on my main devices too, so we're both acting pretty unwisely, but maybe it'll be to the benefit of others. Um, yes, yes. Uh, there have been two bugs I've noticed that have been persistent, and I've reported these to Apple through the feedback. So when you install the public beta, either on the Mac or on an iOS device, you get a new application called Feedback where you can 
submit bugs pretty simply. I mean, it's a it's just a simple little app you launch, and it guides you well. It guides you through the process of mm. reporting the bug, um, so that you don't really miss any important details. Um, it also uploads diagnos diagnostic reports to Apple um, when you submit the bug. Uh, the bugs I've noticed: one on my iPhone 5s. Um, uh, you know, when you take a picture, you can use the volume button as a as the shutter release, mm. um, yeah, yeah. and uh, that just doesn't work for me. And that's true if I launch the camera from the lock screen or from the or from the app itself on the home screen. And in either case, I have to use the on screen button to right, release right. the shutter instead of. Uh, the volume button, which yeah. is, yeah. A, is a minor inconvenience. I mean, I pretty much I'm always using the volume buttons to take pictures. And so there have been a couple times where I've been, you know, a second or two slow on a shot because I push the volume button out of instinct and then it doesn't work. Yeah, I've, I've had that problem this week too, actually. And I don't remember it being in the first two versions. So I somehow got introduced with preview three or whatever. Yeah, that's a common enough bug that if other people are experiencing it, I expect Apple will take care of that pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. funny how those problems can sneak in. You know, you, I always wonder what's happening and that uh, you know, behind the scenes that this function that's been working for years all of a sudden stops working, especially because the camera app hasn't had any huge changes to it with mm -hmm. iOS nine, and so it's surprising that something like that would break, especially right, right. on older devices that have been around. Do you have any um, favorite, favorite features, features on, on either of the new, new versions? versions? Uh, so I really like the new Siri. It's been interesting Siri becoming more about search than just the you know the the voice assistant. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I've noticed in the language Apple has used in the Siri screen that it basically it's basically um, equating Siri with search. Um, right, right. And we talked about that change a little bit earlier, but it's been fascinating to sort of watch it. And I'm, I'm finding I'm broadening my understanding of what Siri is to me. Like adding search to Siri makes it feel much more like a personal assistant than it was before. Where before, you know, it was just basically like, like vo vocal shortcuts, so I didn't have to tap stuff. But with Siri being able to search and suggest apps based on my context, I'm finding that it's becoming much more of an assistant. And search is just one of the functions that an assistant has available. And so I thought that's been pretty cool. Um, I, uh, <clears throat> you know, the funny thing is I can't say that any of the other features have been super compelling. Um, I, I was I was really excited about the concept of slide over on the iPad. You know, the idea that you can be working yeah. on an app and just slide over. But uh, I think that's a habitual thing that I need more time to build up. Like mm -hmm. if a text is coming in, you know, I so I set up messaging to be my default slide over app. Um, just because oh, yeah. that's that tends to be the thing that interrupts my workflow mm -hmm. uh, is a message coming in. And uh, for whatever reason, I still like have the habit of switching over to the full app instead of using slider. Right. So I need to get so that's a habit I need to mm. establish. But that's true for a lot of Apple's UI changes when they when they sort of do these little optimizations, you know, if you don't habitually change or sorry, if you don't change your habit as it relates to those features, you can keep on using, you know, the right. old the old way happily and 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 you know i that's it's that way with me for uh you know um uh for the dashboard and all the other stuff if i never really got into the habit of using those things i just kind of you know those features almost don't exist for me so there's some features that i want to get in a better habit of um i did notice another bug with game center um as i've launched games on my ipad you know trying different games that use game mm -hmm. center game center hangs and in some cases actually locks up the app temporarily um, mm -hmm. and so that's another bug that i doubt i'm the only one experiencing that so right and again it's one of those things it's like well what changed on the back end that all of a sudden causes this to happen 
but those are minor and that's what right, so right. that's what makes me so happy is that those are really minor inconveniences mm-hmm. and and all of the apps i use on a regular basis seem to stay intact i really love that uh that newsstand was finally broken up yeah yep. um because you know i have all these I, I, you know, I have like a cooking folder on my iPad and I can finally stick cooking magazines in that same folder so I don't have to go to a separate newsstand app to read the magazines. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good, isn't it? Yeah, I found there haven't been any hugely compelling features for me on either, but there's been little sort of delighters. I mean, I just found something today. I just discovered that there's a a battery widget now or batteries widget um, in the home screen, in the today screen rather. Um, in the notification shade um, that you can add. And, you know, I always have my battery percentage in my um, status bar at the top of my phone. But what it shows you is is not just the status of the battery on your phone, but your watch as well. So just kind of right there with the percentage and everything. So as you're kind of checking things, you might say, oh, you know, I didn't realize my battery was low. I better go charge it or whatever. So it's nice little things like that that I'm just kind of discovering as I go along. Yeah, that is cool. Um, I did get a notification on my iPhone the other day because it got down to 20% and it gave me the chance to switch to low power mode. Mm, I didn't yeah. try it because I was next to a, a, a power source and so I right. plugged in. But um, I am excited to see all those little changes. You know, I, Apple does releases of OS versions that are much more exciting on the developer end than mm-hmm. they are on the user end. Um and then developers then make it exciting for users because right, they right. do that. And I think that's mostly what we're going to see here, you know, and uh, like Metal, for example, in OS X, I think, uh, I think the gaming world is going to change a bit on the Mac because mm. of that. And it'll be fun to see those changes roll out, you know, more in like October, November. Yeah, absolutely. No, that would be good. Um, so the two other topics we wanted to talk about, one of them was these new ads that Apple put out for the iPhone. And I know you had a, opinions about this, Aaron. I, I've watched one or two of them already and had my own kind of reaction to them, but I'm curious to hear what yours was. Yeah, so they're curious ads to me. In fact, the first time I watched them, the lawyer in me came out because it was this, because, uh, so there's this there's this issue called trademark generis how do you pronounce that where a trademark becomes generic and essentially the the classic example of that is xerox or kleenex where mm-hmm. you know if, if you're not if you're using a, a non-kleenex brand tissue like to blow your nose you you know most people say hey can you hand me a kleenex even if it's not technically kleenex brand right um, so that means when, when you call something a kleenex it's not a kleenex it means the trademark there has become generic and that's a problem for the company you know behind a generic behind a generic trademark because then they can't go after people abusing the trademark right um and so xerox back in the 80s launched a famous campaign where they basically said you know if it's not a xerox it's not a xerox and it's funny because that's what apple's ad is right now is right, you know right. if it's not an iphone then it's not an iphone and it made me curious like were the lawyers involved in this ad? Because because <laughs> uh, here's the thing. A few years back, it was with the iPhone 4. Apple did an ad campaign. If you don't have an iPhone, then you don't have an iPhone. Right, and it was right. sort of distinguishing the iPhone from all other smartphones. It, back then, it was a pretty compelling ad because it was a great way for them to differentiate their product from other smartphones on the market. This one today feels weird for two reasons. One, because of the generic trademark issue. I, I don't hear people talk about Android phones or other smartphones in a way that makes the iPhone brand generic. Like, I don't hear people say, hey, look at the new iPhone I got, and it's actually an Android phone. Yeah, I see that a lot more with the iPad than I do with the iPhone. That's true. And so it's strange that this ad is targeted to the iPhone. Um, and then mm. the other thing that's strange to me about this ad is it's, it feels very much like a retread of the old ads. That right. if, it, if you don't have an iPhone, then you don't have an iPhone. Mm-hmm. And it's strange for Apple to do that. They, they, In fact, I can't think of a time where they've 
essentially gone back and done a strikingly similar version of an ad, you know, that they abandoned Mm. several years before. And so that's kind of what's happened with this ad. I'm curious how long it's going to stick around. You know, there have been a lot of iconic... There's been a lot of iconic Apple advertising over the years, but there's also a lot of forgettable stuff. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if you mm-hmm. remember the really annoying Apple guy, the sort of know-it-all. The, I the, think gen- they ran the genius? Th- yeah, yeah, the genius where he ran, mm-hmm. like, I think they did three or four of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, they, got, they were widely panned. Like, people mm-hmm. were really unimpressed by those ads, and Apple abandoned them quickly. And there's been a lot of those right. over the years. I, you know, I'm curious about this, if it's not an iPhone, like, ad campaign, how long it's going to stick around. yeah. Um, and because uh, it, it it feels pretty forgettable. Yeah, there was another one too that I saw, which was something about you know Apple's the only company that makes the hardware and the software. Um, I don't know if you've seen that one, but that that one felt that one felt like a weird departure from how Apple normally talks about its products. You know, hardware and software are not words that Apple normally uses at all in relation to the iPhone in, in terms of marketing materials or any other kind of communication with customers as opposed to say developers. Um, I just it felt strangely sort of techy and a strangely non-user-friendly way to talk about it. Absolutely, um, that was my exact know, kind of. Yeah, it just felt a bit odd that one. It felt a bit strange, and I, I wonder if what we're seeing here is you know there have been all these reports about Apple basically bringing its advertising in-house um, and doing more and more of it within Apple. And you know, I have several extended family members who work in advertising, and they're seeing this that people from their agencies are being poached by Apple at various points. And, you know, Apple clearly is building up an in-house advertising thing. And I wonder if having it in-house allows Apple to kind of experiment with things. I mean, these are not expensive spots by any means. They're, you know, very cheap to produce. Um, You know, there's not a lot of talent involved or anything like that in terms of, sorry, paid talent um, in terms of famous people or anything like that as they have or high production value or anything like that. It's simple shots of phones and so on. So, um, I wonder if they're just kind of experimenting with some things, and that's why we're seeing some of these slightly different ads. Yeah, which is, is strange for Apple, right? I, I, I mean, yeah. I think that was largely Steve Jobs who drove that, but every Apple ad had to be absolutely perfect. I mean, and they, and you know, yeah. you read those stories of Apple of Steve Jobs being really dissatisfied with with ad campaigns, and and mm. they went through a lot of stages of refinement. So it feels a little weird for them to release an ad like this. Um, right. I, and you know, I think there's no better comparison to really put this into full context than to compare it to the watch ads that just came out. I mean, if you look at the way Apple's advertising the Apple Watch right now, there's no dialogue, high production value because they're traveling all over the world with these actors. And it's all use case stuff, but it's not like, and hey, if you're traveling, you know, there's no voiceover saying when you're traveling, you have the convenience of X with an Apple Watch. Like instead, they're just showing the compelling cases where it's really easy to imagine yourself in the same situation as a as a global traveler or as a parent or, you know, any other situation. And, mm-hmm. and those ads are far more compelling in, in, than, yeah. than sort of the, you know, hey, we built the whole widget kind of argument, which for most right. people is going to be meaningless. Right, right. Yeah, and it's the, the classic kind of show, don't tell mantra that a lot of filmmakers are taught um, in film school. You know, like there's always this temp- temptation to try to tell the story in words, whereas what you need to do is show it playing out. And the, the Apple Watch ads do that extremely well. Some of these new phone ads don't. They kind of reverse it. So um, the last topic we wanted to talk about was the new iPods. Um, and, you know, to some extent, it was kind of a surprise to see those launched this week, actually. I was one of a number of people who basically assumed that the category was basically on the way out. And, you know, we talked about the reporting change related to iPods earlier. That Apple seemed to be kind of pushing it aside um, as sales have, you know, continued to decline quite rapidly over the last few years. And 
to my mind, the iPad has kind of taken over as the sort of device for the kid that either can't have an iPhone yet or his parents don't want him to have an iPhone or whatever. Um, but interesting to see that Apple brought out new iPods. And unlike, you know, last time around when they kind of got a generation old processors, this time around they went right to the top um, in terms of processors. They have the A8, um, which is just the same as the new iPhones. So I, I, maybe that's just another sign that this is the last generation we're going to see. Um, but I don't know. What, you, what were your thoughts about that, Aaron? You know, I think they're going to stick around. It, it, the press made a big deal out of the A8 processor being in the iPod. But so I have a brother who's actually in the semiconductor industry, and uh, it, it's interesting because the way they the, the yield for for chips as they produce them, it, it, all the chips that are produced on a wafer are not necessarily identical. There can be minor differences, and so it allows some chips to be clocked higher than others. Clocked higher, meaning they can run at a faster speed than others mm-hmm. with without overheating or causing problems or kicking off bugs, errors, or whatever. Right. And um, from what I've read, the A8 processors that are in the iPods are actually downclocked compared to the A8s that are in the iPhone 6. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's part of the reason Apple's able to pull that off is because they might have some lower quality yield processors that are in the iPods. And so they're running them at a slower clock rate means that they can keep them it means they can actually still put them to use and put them in the iPods. And another thing to remember is the A8, although it's the newest processor that Apple, you know, has in any of its devices, it's also a year old, right? right because right. I mean, right. it's right now Apple. Right now, Apple's manufacturers are cranking up on the A9, right. and uh, and so it really is a year old processor, and that's a lot of time for people to optimize and make it cheaper. Uh, as a category, I think the iPod Touch is going to be around for a long time. I can't sp- I can't say the same for the for the regular iPod, the Shuffle right. maybe, um, but it, I mean if you remember how long the Classic is stuck around, the iPod Classic mm-hmm. was around for a really long time because there was enough of a market and enough of a margin that yep. it was worth Apple keeping it around for a long time. And when you consider that this iPod Touch goes up to 128 gigs now. I think what we're going to see is the iPod Touch, at the very least, is going to stick around for, I think, at least a few more years. And I Mm -hmm. think it's going to be the equivalent of the iPod Classic for all those times, for all those years that it still hung around. Yeah, no, that'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I know it's basically the iPod Touch has always been the iPhone for the kid that you didn't want to give an iPhone. Um, You know, it's a significantly cheaper product um, if you're paying full price for either of them. Um, you know, doesn't have the cellular connectivity, which means they can't get into trouble with it in various ways that kids sometimes do with these things. Um, and yet, great Christmas present or whatever. And, and so, yeah, I have no doubt they'll continue to sell quite a few of them if they, if they are keeping it around and now updating it in this way. I think what's interesting is the iPod compared to the iPad mini because they're actually really close on price point, And the iPod Touch is, yeah. Yeah. is a lot smaller than the iPad mm-hmm. mini, mm-hmm. It, which kind of makes you wonder why is the iPod Touch cost as much as it does compared to the mini. Right. So I'm curious, A, if maybe prices will come down a little bit on the iPod Touch. Or um, I, I, I will say, I mean, they're pretty close. But really, if you're going to buy an iPad mini in the same price points with the same storage capacity, you're buying uh, an iPad mini that's a couple generations old. Right. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Okay, well, that was the last of the topics that we wanted to cover. Um, you may remember a couple of weeks ago, we introduced a new feature um, to fall at the end of our podcast, which we call our Pick of the Week. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, Aaron recommended a, a musician that he'd been listening to recently. Um, and actually, it's because we skipped a week last week, it's Aaron's turn again. So um, I'm going to let Aaron talk us through his Pick of the Week. So Yan uh, and I have decided that the pick of the week is going to be kind of anything. And in the spirit of that, 
Um, the pick of the week that I'm recommending uh, this time is is a running accessory. So a lot of people run with their phones. I do. I do it both for the music and also because I, I track my miles when I run with my phone. Um, I've always been frustrated with how I carry my phone with me, though. I, I really don't like armbands. I find armbands to be really uncomfortable. Um, and I also don't like sticking it in my pocket because, you know, whatever whatever shorts I'm wearing, you know, the pocket is either hard to access or a little too small or too big so that my phone is flopping around. So I started looking into running belts and I wasn't optimistic because I didn't like the idea of a big, you know, plastic buckle and all that. Well, I found the perfect running belt and I barely know that I'm wearing it. It's really convenient. It keeps my phone locked in place and it's, it's called the flip belt. Um, and it's essentially a, a fabric ring. It's made mostly of lycra, so it's stretchy like spandex. And it has four pockets that give you access to essentially one large inner chamber on the inside of this belt. And what you do is you can slip whatever you want in, you know, like, like maybe your driver's license, a, a set of keys, uh, your iPhone, for example. You can slip it into these gaps that lead into the big middle chamber. And then if you feel like that's too insecure, you can essentially flip the belt so that the, for the, so that the pockets are facing toward the inside and you'll never lose anything. What I really love about the flip belt as I've been using it is that um, my phone is rock steady. I don't feel a jiggling or anything like that. And the waist is a great spot for the phone, especially if you have corded headphones coming out because that way the headphones are just about the right length to not be flopping all over the place. Um, it comes in multiple colors. Uh, and multiple sizes. Uh, you basically just step into it and then pull it up over your waist because it's made out of fabric. You really barely know it's there. You can wear it over your shirt or under your shirt and it's obviously not just great for um, for running. I brought it, I was traveling last week on a camping trip down in, um, uh, in some beautiful country and uh, we went on a couple pretty long hikes. I brought it with me for those hikes because it was just such a convenient way to hold my iPhone. And so that's my pick of the week is the flip belt and you can get it on Amazon REI. It's available through a bunch of retail outlets. Obviously the manufacturer also has their own website. Prices tend to range anywhere from 25 to 30 bucks, which to be honest is a little bit high for such a simple running accessory. But the truth is there aren't many competitors out there for this design. And so as simple as it is, it's kind of surprising that there aren't more variations out there, but the flip belt is the one I went with and I'm really happy with it. And do you, you have, have it in bright, bright pink? pink? No. <laughs> I got mine in charcoal gray. And okay. and actually, I don't even wear it so that you can see it. I pull it up over the waistband of my shorts, and then the shirt that I'm wearing uh, drapes over top of it. Right. And it's it really is just so comfortable and convenient. And if it ever mm -hmm. did show to people, it would not be an embarrassing color. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Aaron. And thank you to the rest of you for joining us as well. We're grateful you were with us, and we look forward to talking to you again next week.